We spent the last few weeks in chapter 9 of Romans examining, or the last two weeks, uh, examining the theological implications of Paul's argument. Paul, very often when he's trying to prove a broader point, will take a little detour and explain some of the theology behind it. And that is what, unfortunately, I, I might say, Romans is most famous for, is this little detour that Paul takes talking about uh, predestination and election. And this incredibly rich, big letter that has so much balance and nuance and taught, teaching about the gospel becomes a, a way to beat people over the head for your favorite theological position. That isn't it to say that it's not true. But all of that that we discussed concerning election and sovereignty of God and everything, it, it's all in context of a point that Paul is trying to make in chapters 9, 10, and 11, which is a discrete section of the book of Romans. So to get us back on track and to take all of those, those things that we thought about, and it's totally appropriate to do that, Paul is in the middle of lamenting the fact that Israel has rejected the gospel as a whole. That God instead has brought the gospel to Gentiles who have received it. And the question is, how can God do that if he promised that Israel were to be his chosen people? And Paul then took that little detour to say, God can choose whomever he pleases. And God does not need to stand by what you expect him to do. That it's always been a remnant of people. It's never been that anybody earns or is owed the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's his point in context, and there's a lot to extrapolate out from that as we did, but the short answer is that God may do as he likes. And in verse 30, Paul is going to resume where he left off. He took a little detour to explain how this could be possible, and now he's going to get back to his main point. And he's going to explain why this is. Why are the Gentiles coming in and the Jews are not as a whole? And this section becomes a strong check on all of us who read it, because we're going to talk today about the stumbling block of the gospel, what Paul calls in Galatians, the offense of the cross, over which many have fallen throughout the centuries. And in an age where more than ever before we are looking for the most important truths to be palatable to our own sensibilities. And the idea of something being offensive on purpose is just strange to us. The gospel stands being defined in its own scriptures as an offense and a stumbling block, a hurdle that people have to get over to get saved. Have you ever thought of the gospel that way? That's how Paul describes it here. And as we hear the message today, you've got to examine yourself to see where your trust truly lies. Because the Jews thought they were pursuing the Lord, but he's going to say it was zeal without knowledge. Your passion is less important than what you're passionate about. So we look at verse 30 and we'll read through verse 31 to begin today. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. So that what shall we say then is, is a summarizing statement. It's a way of getting Paul back on track in his main argument. It's, it's summarizing. In short, he says, the Gentiles have found God while the Jews have not. And this, of course, is broad. Paul himself was a Jew. There are Jews in this congregation here. But we all can tell from Scripture and from history and the world we live in today. The majority of those who have believed in Christ are Gentiles. They are not Jews. And that is, to everybody's surprise. If you look at the Bible, you would never have expected it to pan out the way that it did. 
The nations of the world. That's what the word Gentiles means. It's ethne in Greek. It's where we get the word ethnic from. The nations of the world were not looking for God. <laughs> My ancestors were worshiping rocks around this time. They were barbarians, as they were called, and it was an appropriate name. They were not looking for it. They were not waiting for God's Messiah. They were not searching the scriptures to know when Jesus might appear. And yet, through faith, they received that gospel in large numbers. The Jews in Jesus' day thought that he had come to overthrow Rome. And yet here is Paul writing a letter to Roman citizens who were proud to be Roman citizens. And they had found the same gospel in Christ Jesus. Just look at the book of Acts. It begins by going to the Jews, but the Jews really pushed back on the gospel. But when Paul and Silas and Barnabas and Timothy take the gospel to the nations, churches are being planted everywhere. And it's not the Gentiles that are persecuting them. It's the Jews of the synagogue who drew, grew jealous and ran them out of town. In Acts chapter 11, verse 18, when Peter explains how God had sent the Holy Spirit upon Cornelius, a Roman, and his household, the Jews in the church were upset at first, but when Peter explained what happened, it says they heard these things and they fell silent. And they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. That was their thought. Gentiles too. And we kind of think, well, no, we're all one. We're all, yes, of course we are. But their mindset was, this is for us mostly. And oh, look, Gentiles too. Isn't that nice? And yet as time went by, you saw the proportions begin to change. Because on the other hand, God's chosen people, who we've been reading about in Exodus on Wednesday nights, that God handpicked them and brought them out of Egypt and appeared to them at Sinai and gave them the law. Those people who were zealous for God's law, they learned the lesson of the exile well. They never went back to violating the Sabbath or worshiping idols or holding up sexual immorality as, as normal. In fact, they went the opposite way. They dove so deep into the law that they lost themselves in it, quite literally. They did not receive what they were looking for. That's what the trouble was in Rome, largely. We've talked about this several times, that, that Caesar had kicked the Jews out of Rome for a time because they were disputing, we believe historically, over Jesus Christ himself. And when the Jews like Priscilla and Aquila were brought back into Rome, it seems that the Gentiles who had continued the work we're not prepared to step aside and just let the Jews come back and take their pride of place. And Paul is going to address some of that as we get into chapter 11, and also to address the Jews as well, as he is now. He's going to explain why this happened in a moment, but for right now, we just need to marvel and recognize that it is true, that the most wayward found salvation, and the most religious were standing on the outside. Those who were worshiping Caesar, they were worshiping their ancestors, they were worshiping gods like Bacchus, the god of wine, worshiping gods like Aphrodite, who was the goddess of, oh, we love to say love, but that's the way we sanitize it. It was the goddess of lust, make no mistake. And those were the ones getting saved. Those who had spent time in pagan temples and all kinds of Greco-Roman debauchery were now standing in the church, taking the name of Messiah on their lips. Meanwhile, Pharisees and Sadducees and good Jews were on the outs. This is what Jesus warned would happen, didn't he? He said in Matthew 7, 14, he says, The way that leads to life is narrow and hard, and there are few that find it. Don't we forget that sometimes? Didn't Jesus promise us that almost everybody was going to reject his gospel? 
and there are few that find it. He also said in Matthew chapter 8, verse 11, this is one of the things that really got them angry during his time. No shortage of those in Jesus' life. But he said, there will be many in the kingdom who will come from around the world to sit at table with men like Abraham. He says, it's not just going to be a Jewish party in heaven. He says, God's going to bring people from all over the world. He says, and some of y'all are going to miss out on it. And they couldn't believe he would say something like that. But it is always the case, not just now, but always the case in times of spiritual revival, in times of spiritual height in the church, when God is moving and bringing in a harvest of souls, that the most unlikely are the ones who are saved. It's always the most unlikely. We began with these Gentiles. They had to have a magic book burning party in the church in Ephesus. Believers who were still holding on to their magic stuff, their witchcraft, and they had to come and burn it. Most unlikely. As we said, these barbarians that came and invaded Rome, the ones that, at least for the Christians at, at that time, spoke about them kind of with this cultural bias and saying, well, they need to get saved, sure. And then they also need to kind of start acting a little more Roman because they're, just, they're so uncouth and they're so wild. And yet they get saved. And, and at least for myself, here I am <laughs> preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we don't even remember the names of most of the gods we used to worship. During the revivals under George Whitfield and John Wesley, it was not the religious nice people in the cities that were getting saved. It was the coal miners. It was the workers. It was the ones that nobody thought twice about. That George Whitfield would sit up his pulpit and preach along the way as they went into the coal mines to go and work. And then he would preach again as they came out. And he used to get these people saved. And the churches would say, okay, but don't bring them in here. Don't bring them into the church. And that's why the, the revival had to go out. In the Jesus movement in the 60s and 70s, from which Calvary Chapel came, it was hippies. It was the, the LSD-taking, barefoot, stinking, kind of communist hippies that all got saved. And they didn't all immediately snap into place and start acting like everybody else. Jesus took hold of them and transformed them. While in most of these cases, the religious get left behind. It's exactly what happened here. Let me read from 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul says, Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. Even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Paul says, look at you. Who would have picked you? Who would have picked you to be saved? I mean, look around this room. Think about yourself. Why do you deserve to be here? Hearing the words of God proclaimed. What right do I have to stand on this platform and declare it to you? I'll tell you, none in my flesh. Doesn't matter how many degrees I get or how I was raised. None in Christ Jesus. Now, we're used to hearing this, but we need to remember, again, that this is very odd. That the people who usually get saved are, are the most outside, uncomfortable people during times of spiritual revolution. Why? Why is that? Why did the Jews miss it? And why did the Gentiles find it? The answer is that there is something in the nature of the gospel itself that can never be removed that prevents most people from receiving it. Look at this in verse 32 and 33. 
So the Gentiles attained righteousness and the Jews did not. Why, he says in verse 32, why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. This is a key question, and, and I'm not going to get off into this, but Paul has just spent some time discussing predestination and the sovereignty of God and, and the election of the saved. And yet, right immediately in verse 32, he says, why? And he puts the responsibility for their loss squarely upon their own shoulders. This is that tension that we discussed. So it's important to know, you believe that God has chosen us for salvation. That in no way abrogates your responsibility to believe and follow hard after Jesus Christ. Just a little note as we continue. The reason why an entire nation that had built itself around pursuing God's righteousness could miss it when it finally came was because their method prohibited them from accepting it. The way they went about pursuing God shaped the way they thought about God to the point they couldn't even recognize Him when He came. That can happen. The way you chase after God can change the way you think about God. It should be the opposite. What God has said about Himself shapes the way you chase Him. The Jews pursued righteousness, which is good. That's what you need to pursue. But they pursued it, he says, as if it depended on works, as if righteousness of God, salvation, you might say, is a matter of rules and works and keeping the traditions and doing the right things. Let me tell you, it is not that. Hopefully by now in Romans, you know that. But it can be hard to unlearn something that you've been taught your whole life. That salvation is dependent upon doing anything. Remember this, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, meaning not of works. There's nothing you could do to make it happen. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. He says it like twice in that verse. It's not about works. It's not about you doing anything. And that is the stumbling block of the cross. Imagine working your whole life to earn something, only to learn that your work meant nothing. That ever happened to you at work? Your boss sets you to some project. You spend a lot of time working on it, hours maybe. Maybe it's physical labor and you're working real hard. And then your boss comes out and says, you know what, actually, we don't need that anymore. And so, yeah, what do you want me to do with all this? Uh, you know, just delete it. We don't need it. Oh, that's frustrating. I've been there before asked to work on something, you put your heart and soul into it. Maybe you even don't like it, but you know it's got to be done. And then finally, oh, you didn't need to do all that. It's like when in school, you'd have an assignment, some paper or something, and you go home and you labor and you slave over it, and it's hard, but you know you got to turn it in, and you bring it back, and it turns out 10 people have complained to the teacher about how hard it was. So she says, you know what, I'm not collecting that today. You know, everyone's just going to get an A, and you're sitting there holding this thing. It's like, I worked all night on this. It's frustrating. Well, now apply this on a national theological level. They had built their whole society around keeping the rules. Their whole religion was around rehearsing the rules so that you could keep the rules so that when Messiah comes, we'll be ready. But then Messiah came and he didn't seem too interested in rules, did he? Jesus did not really care for traditions. He never broke the law once. 
Oh, but he broke those traditions over and over and over again. On purpose, it seemed. Goes out of his way to heal people on the Sabbath. Tells the disciples, yeah, go ahead. Take the grain off on the Sabbath day. It's not a big deal. You're harvesting, Jesus. I'm not harvesting. Give me a break. It's not about that. Didn't David eat the showbread? You're saying that this is like David eating the showbread? That he was king. He goes, well, I'm greater than David, so. You're what? You're what now? This is the Sabbath day. He goes, well, I'm Lord of the Sabbath. You're Lord of the Sabbath. He stuck his finger right in it. He found the sore spot and dug down. That's what all good preachers and counselors ought to do, is find the thing you don't want to talk about and say, no, let's talk about that. The Pharisees, who were right in their theology. Paul was a Pharisee. They were the ones defending the entirety of the Word of God, defending their identity as Jews, defending the integrity of the temple, and they were the worst hypocrites of them all. It was easier for a prostitute to get saved and follow Jesus than a religious teacher. You ever consider that? This is the stumbling stone that Paul mentions here. That verse in verse 33, this is actually an amalgamation of two verses from Isaiah. You may want to write this down. Isaiah 8.14 and Isaiah 28.16. Paul takes them both and kind of blends them together. And a lot of people I read had very interesting theories about, well, what exactly was Paul doing? Did he have a different version of Isaiah? To which I said, no, Paul was a preacher, and sometimes preachers quote verses from memory and, you know, in order to get the point across, and that's what he was doing. And it's coming from two different verses, both talking about laying down a stone. One of those verses about, I'm laying down the foundation of what would become, as we know it now, the church, the foundation of what I'm going to build, and his name is Christ, and he will be the cornerstone. But in another verse in Isaiah, he says, and that cornerstone is going to be something that most people will trip over. They're going to see it and it's going to cause them to stumble. By the way, stumble doesn't mean offended. Can we dispense with that? You stumbled me. What does that mean? Oh, I didn't like that you did that. That's not what stumbling means. Stumble means to cause to sin or fall away from Jesus. So be careful before you start saying, I was stumbled by that. Because you're, you're admitting that your faith was in jeopardy. He says, I'm laying this foundation stone and most people are going to trip over him. Paul refers in Galatians, as I says, to the offense of the cross that must not be removed. What's so offensive? The offensive idea that nobody has a leg up on salvation, no matter how hard you work. That it is only a gift, that it may be accepted by anyone, and the method God has chosen is faith, which is completely separate from everything you've done to try to earn it. Turn with me to 2 Kings chapter 5. You know this story. From when you were a kid, perhaps you remember, you had a little flannel graph that told this story. I know I did. This is the story of a man named Naaman. He was a Syrian, so he's not a Jew, not an Israelite, and he was a commander in the army, but he had leprosy. And there was a slave girl in his house who was a Hebrew, and she told him, you need to go to the prophet Elisha. Elisha will heal you. He has power from the Lord. So Naaman goes to Israel, and he shows up in style with great tribute, you know, clothing and silver and gold and spices to present to the man of God, because that's what the man of God he was used to. They wanted money. You know, if you want a better healing, you got to make a greater donation, Naaman. But he comes, and he goes to Elisha, and he gets to Elisha's house, and I'm going to read in verse 9. 
So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. So imagine big procession and then the trumpets, right? Naaman has arrived, the commander, to speak with the man of God. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. So imagine if, you know, one of those limousines with the American flags on it and those, you know, police motorcycles that stop traffic so bad and they all roll up in front of your house and security detail fans out and out comes I don't know the president the governor or senator somebody important so, I wish to speak with you and you send out one of your kids to go and, and give him a message here this is from dad how might he respond Naaman verse 11 was angry and went away saying behold I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord is God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. He was expecting a show. It's what he was used to. He was expecting them to chant and, and foam at the mouth and maybe do some smoke tricks and who knows. But instead he said, go take a bath. Go take seven baths. Are not Abarna and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? Do you think I didn't think to wash myself? So he turned and went away in a rage. But his servants came near and said to him, My father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? Meaning, that's all he wanted? All he wanted you to wash and you won't do it? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Naaman was offended at what he was being asked to do. To go and wash in a river to clean up my leprosy. To, clean, to wash in and this tiny little thing you call a river. Meanwhile, I'm back in Damascus and we've built on these great rivers that flow through and, and they're cleaner than this and they're better than this. And she's trying to get one over. He's trying to shame me and embarrass me by not coming out to me. Even though we know good and well that that was exactly the thing that was going to heal him. He was offended as if my rivers are no good. As if I hadn't thought of that. You're insulting me. As if my position means nothing to this prophet. You know, after he was healed, he came back to talk to Elisha again. Elisha still wouldn't come out to him. Sent out his servant again. He says, hey, he just says, you don't know him anything, just go on home. What about my passion? I came all the way from Damascus, and you're going to tell me that that doesn't mean anything to you? The gospel of grace, likewise, is a pride buster for anybody who thinks they deserve God's favor. Well, I showed up in style. Don't you know who I am? Don't you know how desperate I am? Don't you know how hard my situation is? That's got to count for something wrong. None of it counts for anything. We are offended in all the same ways Naaman was. Oh, so you're saying that I have to do it your way? I can't do it some other way? What makes you think your way is so better? You know, my people come from a different country and we have different traditions. So you're telling me the way to be saved is to go along with your traditions? What's wrong with Islam? What's wrong with Buddhism? That's where I come from. So why would I go after Jesus? That's, that's offensive. Oh, you're saying all I have to do is ask forgiveness? You think I haven't been on my knees crying and weeping and feeling bad about what I've done before? You're saying that counts for nothing? My position, don't you know who I am? 
Oh, Jesus said it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a wealthy man to enter the kingdom of God. It's really amazing to me. You know, we talk about the separation and segregation of churches. How about the separation and segregation of class in churches? You get the rich church and the middle church and the poor church, and this is the church where you can meet people, and this is the church where you go if you want to say that you really are on the up and up. And that's so shameful, isn't it? It shouldn't matter. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter who walks in that door. It doesn't matter if they've got the flags on their, on their limousine coming through. It doesn't matter. What about my zeal and my passion? Don't you know how much I love God? Don't you know how much I care about the church? Don't you know how much I want to see this country come back to Christ? Don't you know how much I care about this issue or that issue? It doesn't mean anything. And that's offensive to people. It might be offensive to you sitting here hearing it right now. I don't know if you should say it that strongly. I will say it that strongly. Because church people have the hardest time believing that their works mean nothing. Because our works are good. That's the problem. If you are a wicked sinner, you'd be grasping at the chance to have it for free. But when you've got all of this that you think you've banked over here, and it turns out you can't carry it with you, you can get offensive. And I did say church people deliberately, because just because you go to church does not mean you are a Christian. That is not going to be the question God asks you. Did you go to church? Was it a Bible teaching church? Did they go verse by verse? What kind of worship did they have? He's not going to care. He's going to say, what have you done with my son, Jesus Christ? Have you believed on him? You put your faith? Well, yes, but I mean, Lord, I mean, look at all this, though. Look at all, look how much money I raised. God goes, you think I need money? Look, I have the cattle on a thousand hills. I don't need it. We're offended in all the same ways he was. Because we think salvation should be graded, especially based upon your religious convictions. We say, well, yes, they need to be saved by grace, but certainly this must count for something. Certainly, yes, we'll be saved, but I'll be like a Christian second class, like, you know, one step up, and then I'll become like the third rank Christian. No, that's not how it works. The only gradations are those of rewards in heaven when you stand before Jesus. And you know what Jesus said about that day? And that day, many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. You think, well, look at all that I've done. God goes, that might not mean nothing on the final day. The Jews could not accept that their traditions and morals and good deeds meant nothing in terms of salvation, and so they rejected it. They couldn't handle that everything that I've believed and grown up doing and held so tightly to means nothing in terms of eternity. I refuse to believe that, so I'm going to keep on going and believe that that doesn't count. And they missed their only opportunity of salvation. They stormed away from Elisha's house, refusing to bathe in the Jordan River because they thought their rivers were just as good. Are you guilty of the same arrogance, Christian? Do you know that it does not matter that you're an American one lick in the eyes of God? He doesn't care. doesn't even come up in the conversation. That God doesn't care who you voted for when it comes to matters of salvation. That God doesn't care how long you've been in church or how much you tithed or how much you served or how many mission trips you've been on. That that will not aid you one bit when you stand before him. The only question he will ask is, have you believed on my son Jesus Christ? I say, well, of course, that's all part of it. It might be, but it also might not be. It can be very easy to get so busy with all the Christian stuff that you think, well, of course, I must be in. I wouldn't be doing this if I didn't. You don't deceive yourself. Don't deceive yourself because we look in chapter 10 and he's going to talk about zeal without knowledge. 
Let's read these first three verses. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to, the, to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Paul reaffirms his love for the Jewish nation. Back in chapter 9, verse 3, he had said, I wish that I myself were accursed and cut off for the sake of my countrymen. And here he repeats that. I, I pray that they will be saved, which is important to see. And it's going to continue into chapter 11 that God is not finished with Israel. He's not done with them, not even as a nation. So we continue to pray for them too. But Paul says, look, I'm a Jew. I was one of them. I am one of them. And I can attest to you, they have a zeal for God. They're passionate about it. That's the thing that is most important to them. But unfortunately, he says, it is ignorant passion. And the ignorance was, they did not understand that God's righteousness can only come as a gift. And they refused, he says, to submit to it. Instead, choosing to depend on their own righteousness rather than receive that of God. We've seen this already in Romans, and Paul is assuming that you have, but let's remind ourselves. The truth is that God's righteousness is perfect, and ours cannot reach up to it no matter what. It doesn't matter if you're good or even if you're great. If you're not perfect, you are outside. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. This is the thing we need to know. Well, church says everybody's a sinner. Well, of course they are. Nobody's perfect. Well, it's our flaws that make us beautiful. No, it's your flaws that show that you're broken. Brokenness is beautiful. No, it's going to send you to hell. Isaiah 64, 6 says, We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. Our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment, filthy rags. Everything we just talked about that people think they need to do in order to be saved, however many times I prayed or this or that, it's filthy rags. That's, that's the highest level you can attain with your good works. Filthy rags. So for somebody to think, oh, I can wash that out. You ever have a shirt that you really liked and you get stained real bad and you think, I can wash that out and it's just not going to happen? Oh, it looks, it's just as good. Maybe this is a guy thing. I don't know. Oh, it looks just as good. It doesn't, honey. It's got to go. No, it's fine. If I stand like this, you can't even see the spaghetti stain. You can't wash it out. Now, the wonderful news is that God is willing to take your righteousness, and he says, wash it white as snow. To take that blood-stained garment and wash it white as snow. But it requires you to surrender your life, and as Paul says, submit to God's righteousness. This is the stumbling block, that you must submit to God's righteousness. We don't like that word submit, even a little bit. Submit? Never. Never bow the knee, right? You, you, you can't tell me what to do. We don't even like our own elected officials telling us what to do too much. Well, I'll do it if, if I agree. But if I disagree, we're going to have a fight on our hands. And listen, that's part of our nation. It's part of the way we're founded. That's, that's one thing. But don't you dare try and pull that with God. You, you, there's no revolution with God. There's, there's no constitutional authority with God. It's dictatorship. In fact, the Bible will use the word uh, despot to describe God in some places. Saying, he's all-powerful. 
He is the only king. It is an absolute monarchy, and you bow the knee. That's the stumbling block. Well, yes, but when I, when I bow before God, then everything will, all my dreams will come true, and everything will be great. Nope, your life must perish, and Jesus must be all that remains for you. Galatians 2.20, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. To be saved means to no longer live. That that old life that you love so dearly and you've done so much to build up and make wonderful has got to go. It's got to be burned up on the altar. It's got to be nailed to the cross with Jesus. Jesus said, whoever finds his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Losing your life. Paul says, I don't live anymore. The old life is gone. The only reason I live now is for and through Jesus Christ. That's what it means to be saved. And there are those of us, even here, who we hear the thought of giving everything over to Jesus, and there are certain things that you hear that and your hands start to tighten around it. Not this, though. Well, God wouldn't ask me to give that up. Don't be so sure. The Lord told Abraham, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and sacrifice him before me. Well, God was going to give him back. Yeah, but God didn't give him back until Abraham had already fully let him go. Good is dead in his heart before he stopped him. So many people cannot make this exchange. They would rather rely on their own zeal and passion. Well, there's no way God could refuse me. Look how excited I am. Look how loud I worship. Look how much I care about doctrine and how much I correct people when they're wrong. Look at how much I care about all the right causes and all the right things. God couldn't possibly reject me. That's not what it's about. Or they try to establish their own works. They say, look, I'm not giving all these things up, but I will do a lot of wonderful things. A lot of men do this when they come to the end of their lives. and They're starting to see the end. So they say, all right, I've lived a a godless life, but I'm going to come to the church and start doing lots of good things, start giving a lot of this money over so that God will let me in. That's wonderful if you have given your life over to Christ. If you've not put your faith in Jesus, those things are just going to be a reproach to you. You sitting in church every week and hearing the gospel preach and thinking, well, I'm good because I'm here. God's going to say, you heard it every week. And you didn't bow the knee. Well, I'm my own man. I'm self-made. Done work. That might be admirable in the marketplace. It'll send you to hell in the church. We cannot let go. Let me use an example here. And I think this is a key example because it's it's so clearly seen in this one instance. I'm going to use the example of the homosexual. Somebody who is so obsessed with his identity that it's all about this is who I am, this is what I do, I have my own way of thinking, my own way of believing, and I refuse to give it up. It's amazing, isn't it, that the conversation around sexual issues isn't really discussed around the sexuality itself. It's discussed around personhood and identity and the nature of somebody. That's where the conversation is had. And they refuse to give it up even for God. Well, if the church will allow me to stay gay, then I'll get saved. And if not, then I don't want it. That is the sin that will condemn him. Far more than his depravities. And you need to hear that. It is not the fact that someone is gay or a drunkard or any such thing, ultimately, that will condemn them. It is their unwillingness to give it over to Jesus Christ. 
Say, I'll do it. Lord, I need to believe. I've been there with people. So I'm ready to believe. Then you've got to give this up. Well, I don't think I need to. Jesus says you do. Well, then I don't want this. That is a refusal to submit to God's righteousness. And the reason I use that example is because it's very easy to point at that sin and say, wrong. But you do need to realize that the sin they are committing ultimately is just as easily committed by you. You might not even be able to put yourself in the same frame of mind as a homosexual person. But do you have things about yourself that you would never change even for God? Then you are in the same boat as far as salvation is concerned. You're holding on to anything. People came to Jesus and, and, and he said, come and follow me. And they gave all kinds of different reasons. And every one of them, he said, I want all of it. Jesus only told one person, sell all that you have and come and follow me. It was the man obsessed with his money. That was the cost of admission for him. Why didn't Jesus just bring him along and then slowly work it out? Because Jesus, he, he's not in. He wants the benefits of salvation, but he won't die to himself. So have you died with Christ? Are you living solely and only through Jesus Christ? Or are you trying to add Jesus to what you've already got going on? Is it part of your identity, part of your tradition, part of your family, part of your politics, God forbid, that you're here? All of that is inferior. Have you given up everything to follow Jesus Christ? Are you dead to all these things? Jesus said you must even hate your father and mother and children. So that, I thought Jesus said we're supposed to love them. Yes, but would you be willing to give up even them if that's what it cost? Well, no, I stand with my family. Then you stand condemned. It's everything. That's the cost. How much does it cost to believe in Jesus? Nothing. But in another very real sense, everything. Everything you have. It's the pearl beyond price that a man sold everything that he could purchase. It's a treasure hidden in a field where the man gave up everything to go and get it. If you're not willing to do that, Jesus said, you're not worthy to be called my disciple. So stop taking my name on your lips and putting it out there for people to think that you're one of mine because you're not. You're deceived. You're zealous, but you lack knowledge and you refuse to submit to my righteousness. This is why the most unexpected get saved because they know that already. They know they're broken. They know that they're strung out and they need a complete overhaul. They know they're a drunkard. They know they're a womanizer. They know that they're messing with witchcraft and they've got to, they've got to scrap it all and start over. Oh, but good people like you and me see something of value in our lives, something that must be retained, something that needs to be kept. And we despise anybody that asks us to place that on the altar. That's why it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven because he's done so many worthy, noble things. But when you stand before Christ, he says, all of it, you must be crucified with me. That's what it costs, Christian. Your skills and your status, your reputation, your passion, your personality, those things will keep you out of heaven forever if you refuse to let them go. Why do Christians make such a big deal out of this issue or that issue? Because if an issue becomes one where it pushes you to never give it up, you're lost. You're lost. And it doesn't matter what it is. There are people that would not give up their jobs for Jesus Christ. There are people that would not give up their careers or relationships or hobbies for Christ. Never mind sexuality or major vile things like that. Simple little things will keep you out just as easily. Because we see in verse 4, 
that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. The stumbling block is Christ himself and his substitutionary atonement dying in your place on the cross. He calls Jesus the end of the law, the telos, the purpose, the the goal of the law, emphasizing that the Jews were not looking in the wrong place when they read the Old Testament, but they misunderstood its lesson. They catastrophically missed the point as they read it. Did not David himself say in Psalm 51, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. The law was an impossible standard. Peter in Acts 15 said that it was a yoke that neither we nor our fathers could bear. James said, if you stumbled in one point, you stumbled in all of it. You can't keep the law. It was intended to drive people to their knees and say, God, I can't do this. Only thing I can cry out for is your mercy. Instead, rather than coming to the place where the Jews realize we can't keep this law, all we can do is ask for mercy, they set up a web of tradition that they believed would establish their righteousness. And these traditions were far easier to keep than the deep matters of the scriptures. Oh, it's much easier to sit at home every Saturday and not do anything. It's much easier to fast on Wednesdays and Fridays than to love your neighbor as yourself. It's much easier to go to the temple and offer tithes than it is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. It's easier for you to drop something in that box than it is to give your entire heart over to God, which is the first and greatest commandment upon which the entire law hangs. They set up a web of traditions. They made it easier. And in so doing, not only did they get so far away from the heart of the law, they deceived themselves into thinking that they could keep the law. But the law meant to teach us that we need a sacrifice and to look to God to supply one for us. That was the whole point. And Jesus was that promised sacrifice, the perfectly righteous one, so scorned by the world But when he died, his blood poured out life for all who would believe, all who would receive his gift of grace. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all, in the words of Elijah. He was the substitute. And you may not have had the law, but has not your life taught you that you can't do it? That you're not good enough? Well, I overcame and I struggled and I fought. The fact that you needed to struggle and fight and overcome tells us who you really are. We need a complete overhaul. You cannot establish your own righteousness. Your good deeds will never be enough. Never. And it's not even that God will give you the grace to earn your salvation. No, no, no. He gifts you the salvation. And Christ provides that complete overhaul. The only way to be saved is to give up on trying to earn salvation and rest solely and completely on the work he's done on the cross. What makes you think you'll be saved? Because Jesus Christ died in my place. Don't talk about the rest of it when people ask you that question. 
What does it mean to be a Christian? It means that we believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for the forgiveness of sins and rose again from the dead on the third day, and that he offers salvation freely by grace through faith. That's it. That's it. There's a lot more, but it all starts with that. Those on the fringes often get this faster because they know. This is why people get saved during moments of crisis in their life. Oh, people just looking for a crutch. Uh, no, they realize that they're broken and crippled and need a crutch during those times of their life. This is why people get saved on their deathbed or when they're sick or when they lose a family member. When everything that they thought was so stable and working breaks, now they're finally forced to confront themselves and see who they really are. And God says, you can't do it, but I can give it to you freely. Decent folks often miss it. Well, look, we're doing fine. Raising good kids, and they're going off to college, and we've got a savings fund, and I don't cheat at work, and it's all, it's all good. It's not. It's the most insidious kind of sin that you're walking in. Isn't it so much easier to share the gospel with somebody that wants nothing to do with God than somebody who's been in church for a long time and yet is, is a raging hypocrite? You know this guy. You work with this guy. His mouth is foul and the things he talks about and the things he does, he lies, he cheats, and he gossips and he sneaks around behind everybody's back and you try to confront him on it and immediately, boom, this religious shield goes up and he knows all the verses and all the doctrine and he can quote it right back at you and you're sitting there going, I don't even know how to talk to this guy, but he's such a hypocrite. He thinks all this is going to save him, but look at the fruit on his tree, it's rotten. Oh, the Bible says this and that. Yeah, but you're not doing any of it. Maybe there's some of you even in here. Jesus told the parable of a man who gave a banquet. All his friends came up with excuses why they couldn't come. They refused. So in Luke 14, Jesus said, The servant came and reported these things to his master. And the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets in the lanes of the city. Bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you commanded has been done and still there is room. The master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. What's the lesson there? The gospel came first to the Jews and they refused it. The ones that should have known, the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the priests. So he says, fine, bring the poor, the sick, the blind, the lame. Bring those that nobody would expect. Mary Magdalene, full of seven demons. Let's bring her in. Levi, the tax collector. Let's bring him in. Zacchaeus, the cheat and the thief that everybody hates even when they hear his name. Bring him in. Let's save these people. But there's still room. Fine, go out to all the world and bring in all the pagans that are worshiping the earth and the stars, engaging in witchcraft and blood sacrifice, all manner of sexual depravity and wickedness and evil and greed. Bring them to my banquet. That's what salvation is. They rejected Jesus out of pride, a pride that we all tend to share. The pride that says, I'm doing good enough. How dare you ask me to be broken? Martin Lloyd-Jones tells a story of, a, I forget who it is, a famous preacher. He said, who came in and started preaching to his congregation like this, and they got offended, and one woman said, that man speaks to us as if we were sinners. 
It is only those who are not offended by the requirement to die to yourself who will be saved. It is only those who will be crucified with Christ and be born again. Brothers and sisters, don't you know what born again means? It doesn't mean you've got a, a new religion. It means that everything is different. We're starting over. Whatever you had before is gone. We're completely realigning our priorities and our beliefs and our morals and our relationships. It's all getting overhauled. You might know you need that, but you might not realize what it costs. So many times we want to fix these little things and not uproot the foundation. So well, I, this isn't the problem. It's, it's just this little bit over here. That's not enough. Somebody comes into me and wants counseling and they're not saved. I'll, I'll try to give you good advice, but all I can say is this is never going to get better until you put your faith in Jesus. Christians always want to just talk about the gospel and converting people to their religion instead of just helping people. That is ignorance talking because they're going to hell. They're going to die without Christ. Now remember the poor, of course, but we're all poor in spirit. You know, we're in this community where there, there is such a range of life experience and income and future and past it's so broad and so vast. They all must be saved equally. For many, James tells the rich, glory in your humiliation. Glory in the fact that you've been brought down to the same level as some of these prisoners that I'm going to go speaking to tomorrow. These murderers that will be saved just the same as us. If you see your religion as an attempt to curry favor for heaven, then you have zeal without knowledge. If you see your identity as something that you're expecting God to water and blossom instead of crucify and remake, your zeal is without knowledge. You must be willing to lay all of it at his feet and call him Lord. To lose everything with no hope of ever getting it back. Can't you taste it? Can't you just see that? It's right there on the edge of your consciousness and your understanding of what it would really cost to go after Jesus. Everything this time. Not just a few things, not one. Everything given over to Christ. It's wide open, it's exposed, it's scary, it's fearful. But that is where salvation is to be found. To the place where you finally say, not my will, but yours be done. I have been crucified with Christ. I've been born again and I no longer live. And the only living I'm doing is through Christ himself. My will and my preferences and my heritage and my traditions don't matter anymore. I'm not fighting for those things anymore. I'm only doing one thing, and that is to press on after Jesus Christ. If by any means I might attain to the resurrection of the dead. And those that are on the outside very often get it first. So, heaven will be a motley congregation. Will you be found there?